<clears throat> Philippians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Amen. Now, to be honest with you, there is something quite thrilling to preach the first sermon on New Year's, on the first Sunday of the new year. And like the rest of you, I share both an anticipation and an expectation of greater things to come this year. But yet, at the same time, I was writing this message and I realized it is sobering to note that every generation in the, in the past probably thought that their new year was going to be the best and brightest ever. And who can fault them? Such optimism is necessary in life. But turn back the clock exactly 100 years. I wonder what Americans were thinking on the first Sunday of the year 1919. And you might ask, why 1919? What's so significant about 1919? Well, it wasn't even a full two months earlier that the war to end all wars, World War I, had just ended. An estimated 40 million people had died during that war. And it remains one of the bloodiest conflicts in human history. In fact, starting in 1919 and beyond, people referred to World War I as the Great War. Unsurprisingly, New Year of 1919 brought much pessimism along with the relief caused by the end of the war. At the turn of the century, Americans had a great deal of optimism. After World War I, much of it was shattered. William Butler Yeats famously sounded a warning in his famous poem, The Second Coming. Yeats wrote, listen this, Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. I think that captures 
what was in the heart of many Americans in the year 1919. Butler's artistic dismay turned to be prophetic when exactly just 20 years later, a war that was nearly twice as bloody engulfed the world. And in 1939, the world stage saw the likes of Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, and Hirohito. And the blood-dimmed tide was once again loosed upon the nations. And while writing this message, I quietly thank God that the year is 2019 and not 1919, not 1939. Can you imagine what New Year's must have felt like in those years? Yet simultaneously, we should not be naive enough to think that we are too advanced, too educated, and too benevolent for such wars to ever break out again. Wars, if I may remind you, wars are not the products of uneducated men. Rather, wars are the result of a fallen humanity in need of a savior. Scripture says, in fact, that until Christ returns, until the King of Kings comes back to rule, peace on earth and goodwill to men will always be evasive, ephemeral, not lasting. We know that even in our personal relationships, we could be on good terms with somebody one moment, and the next, there is bitter animosity. There will continue to be wars and rumors of wars. I hate to say that, but it's true. And in fact, Scripture tells us that we are moving closer and closer to Armageddon, the final war, the war that will indeed end all wars. Until then, we have seasons of war, seasons of peace, empires rise, empires fall. How then should the Christian approach this new year? Should we have anxiety and worry? Surely, when we turn on the evening news, we see much cause for alarm, don't we? There are talks of military uprisings, differing opinions on troop withdrawals, Stories of powerful nations threatening trade wars. Interest rates rising. Stock markets volatile. Add to that the calamities of daily life and you have the recipe for a personal nervous breakdown. Well, the main point of this morning's sermon, the first sermon of 2019 here at this chapel, is quite straightforward. Here it is. Christians who consistently live with a forward-looking reality of heaven gain the peace of God. Christians who consistently live with a forward-looking reality of heaven gain the peace of God. Today's sermon is about the tale of two cities. More specifically, it's really about the tale of two citizens, the earthly citizen and the heavenly one. The implications of one's citizenship are manifold and profound, both in this world and in the next. Romans 3, 14-21 has both an exhortation and a contrast. Let's study the text together. First, the exhortation. 
In verses 14 through 17, the Apostle Paul exhorts us to follow Jesus the way he does and encourages us to keep our eyes on the heavenly prize. Or, as he says in verse 14, to press onward toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's a twofold lesson there. Number one, if you have godly individuals who are spiritually mature in your life, Keep them in your life and follow them as they follow Christ. Flesh and blood examples are the best incentive at times to keep walking the Christian faith. The second lesson here is that we have to consistently keep our eyes on the prize. Who is the prize? Christ Jesus. So on this first Sunday of 2019, are you actively pressing forward and looking forward to the day you will meet Jesus Christ. Time is flying by. You are a year closer now to meeting Jesus than you were in 2018. And then there's a contrast in this text. Verses 18 to 21 contain contrast. Do you see it? It is a contrast between the citizens of heaven and the citizens of earth. Now, there are some similarities between both types of citizens. Read the text carefully. First, we see that both are glory seekers. Both are glory seekers. Second, we see that both serve a God, or the one true God. By using the word citizenship in verse 20, Paul is making this an identity issue. The citizens of earth ultimately worship their God, Their belly. Much like our culture today, this is materialism. It is another way of saying that they live for food, money, sex, temporal pleasures. In a deluded twist, they glory in their sins while their minds are set on earthly things. Notice the word there. It's set. It's fixed. 24-7, that's what they think of. They can't think of anything else. For them, anything that results in the loss of temporal goods is a devastating threat. And often is that not the cause of many a war. Now these individuals are contrasted in verse 20 to the citizens of heaven. And while the citizens of earth live for a moment, the citizens of heaven are not living for the moment. They are waiting. Waiting for what or for whom? Verse 20 states that they are waiting for their Savior, Christ Jesus. Now why are they waiting for Him? Why not indulge in ambition and gain the glories like the citizens of earth? There is a gospel called prosperity gospel that teaches that. It's very similar to the gospel that the earthly citizens follow. I said earlier, both are glory seekers. Earthly citizens seek glory now in the present. It lasts for a moment. And though they know that they will die, they delude themselves in living in such a way as if they won't. They live for the present. They live for the glory now. And why do citizens of heaven wait? 
Because Jesus promises a glory that will surpass anything on this earth. Look at verse 21. Every new year, for better or for worse, we are reminded of our mortality. I was sitting at the tire shop this past week getting some tires, and that took an hour and a half. But the only thing they had on TV was an infomercial by Cindy Crawford, who I can't believe now, I think she's in her 50s. But she was selling products on New Year's Day of how to keep her skin tight. And the phones were ringing, so they said. But the truth is, every new year we are reminded that we are getting older. Regardless of what kind of cream Cindy Crawford uses, the wrinkles and gray hairs are mounting. Death is inevitable. And while the citizens of earth are desperately trying to maintain their earthly bodies because that's all they have, the Christian, on the other hand, while maintaining his health, keeps it in proper perspective and ages gracefully because he knows that the best is yet to come. This earthly body is merely a seed to be planted for eternity. In fact, as we're aging, we're becoming ripe. For eternity. Think about it that way. The next time you see a new wrinkle in the mirror, I'm becoming ripe for heaven. Try to smile. This earthly body is merely a seed. In verse 21, here's what Jesus promises. All of us who are so nervous about another year passing, about getting older, here's what Jesus says. He promises in verse 21 to transform our lowly bodies. He knows what we're worried about. And here's what he says. I'm going to transform your lowly body to be like my own glorious post-resurrection body. The contrast couldn't be clearer. And so verse 21 speaks hope into our current culture that is obsessed with anti-aging methods and health benefits. Our scripture today says, wait, glory is coming. Don't live as if this is it. You know, the day after New Year, I received uh, my Costco Connection magazine in the mail. Here it is, right here. You guys probably got this in the mail. So, and, and I found it interesting. It says, new life. And as a pastor, I, this piqued my interest. I normally don't read it, but this time I did. Title of, on the cover, Old Life, New Life, Life After Work, Five Steps to the Best Retirement Ever. Don't you want to know what those five steps were? Well, I'll tell you. Because I was curious and I looked it up. Number one, don't call it a retirement. Instead, call it elderhood. Terminology matters, I guess. So he writes, Childhood prepares us for adulthood. So logically, according to the author, adulthood prepares us for elderhood. So call it elderhood. If anything, it will make you feel better. I don't know about you, but it didn't really make me feel better. But maybe it does for some people. Number two, get the Medicare thing right. Apparently, Medicare has parts A, B, C, and D. Supplementary income is often required because Medicare never covers all of your health care costs. It's good to know. 
Number three, create a team, a financial team to help make money and a health team to maintain your health goals. Number four, figure out where to live. Do you want to downsize or do you need assisted living? That kind of depressed me, but it's coming anyway. (laughs) Number five, make the most of your time. The most successful retirements were those that were profoundly meaningful. Those are your five steps to Costco. Now, to be honest, I found myself checking off the list and making mental notes to see if one day I'll be prepared for retirement. And then I paused. I realized that no matter how well one's retirement is, it is nothing but a brief moment compared to eternity. The real question ought to be, are we prepared for eternity? With each passing year and with each list of resolutions, I am often astounded by the fact that so many of us fail to prepare for eternity, but we are obsessed with our blended retirement system options. And those in their retirement years, I believe, are the most in need of having a spiritual checkup to see if they are reconciled with God through the blood of Jesus Christ and ready for eternity. So friends, this year, we need not resolution. What we need is regeneration. We must be born again. In the third chapter of John's very famous gospel, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That was a term Jesus used for being saved, being born again. No one is born a Christian No one is made a Christian through family relations. There is only one way to be born again, and that is through believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen closely to the gospel. The Christian gospel declares that there is a holy God who loves you, but he is also a God of justice. And as such, he must condemn sinners, punish sinners in the fires of hell. And that's bad news for us because every single one of us, myself included, we are sinners deserving the wrath of God in hell. And that's where we're headed when we die. But the good news, the great news is that God so loved the world, He gave His one and only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. If you repent and believe in Jesus as your Lord, God, and Savior, you have eternal life. And that's the Christian gospel. And eternal life begins the moment you believe. In fact, Jesus said the moment you believe, that's when you're regenerated. That's when you're born again. And that's when this stuff becomes secondary because the best is yet to come after retirement. Now, the gospel has not changed for 2,000 years. And some of you have noticed, you've come up to me and told me about it. After sharing the gospel, every single sermon in 2018, whenever I preach, some of you might be tired of me preaching the gospel every week from the pulpit. But I would say I would be amiss if I didn't preach the gospel. I have no other message worth preaching. It is God's only means of salvation. And today, on the first Sunday of 2019, I am here to tell you it is the only means to a truly meaningful year. Now let's zero in on verse 19. 
to sum things up, the key difference between the heavenly citizen and the earthly citizen is a difference in mindsets. A difference in mindsets. Verse 19 says that the one who lacks heavenly citizenship has my has a mind that is set on earthly things. There is no kingdom-mindedness to anything they do. They don't think about life after death. On the other hand, the heavenly citizen lives each year with their minds set on heaven. As a result, they make massive impact with their earthly lives. It guides every single decision they make, especially the decision with regard to what to do with the most precious resource you have, otherwise known as time. Time is the only resource you can never reallocate. Author C.S. Lewis once said this, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Now I know there are a boatload of New Year resolutions made by Christians that are simply temporary ones. Even the ever-popular resolution to go to the gym is a temporary one, as bodies inevitably break down and time irreversibly causes everything to sag. So this year, I challenge you to live with your mind set on Jesus. Make impact in this world because your mind is set on the next. Make it a goal to lead at least one person to Christ. If you didn't lead anyone to Christ in 2018, pray to God, God, use me this year to lead someone to Christ. What a privilege that would be. Perhaps you could have a Bible study regularly with somebody this year. This would be the year where you actually become a fisher of men, a disciple maker for Christ, making impact. Remember, with each passing year, the kingdom of heaven draws closer. I guess what I'm trying to say is treasure your heavenly citizenship. Treasure it. I was watching a documentary on illegal immigration. And I'm not here to tell you either way, but I'm simply here to say that I left watching that documentary treasuring my citizenship. And then I thought to myself, how much more my heavenly citizenship. Heavenly citizenship. It was purchased by the blood of Jesus. Its legal demands were met by his crucifixion and resurrection. Jesus did not skirt the legal demands. And once you die, there is no amnesty, no middle ground, no alternate way to citizenship. There's only heaven and hell. No purgatory, and thus nothing could be more important than helping others properly and legally obtain citizenship. It's big. And it's the reason why I preach the gospel here every single Sunday. Because there's only one path to citizenship, and his name is Jesus. Amen? You know, it's real easy to forget the value of one's heavenly citizenship while living on earth. Kind of like how we take our citizenship for granted. Until we cross the border and we look at them and we realize, wow, 
It's easy to get caught up in the busyness of life and forget about heaven. It's easy and tempting to think that unbelievers don't really need an eternal citizenship. And finally, I would say it's easy for us citizens of heaven to live on earth as if we don't belong in heaven. The year was 410 A.D., the glorious city of Rome. The eternal city is what they called it. The glorious city of Rome. The city no one could, would, no one even dared imagine would ever fall was being sacked by the vandals. Both Christians and unbelievers were filled with anxiety at the world events surrounding them. For unbelievers, everything they lived for was vanishing before their very eyes. Witnessing his flock in need of guidance, Augustine, the bishop of the city of Hippo, took to writing and wrote one of the most important works in Western civilization. In chapter 10 of the City of God, Augustine convincingly argues that Christians lose nothing in losing temporal goods. Why? Because our citizenship is in heaven. Additionally, he makes the valid point that, the on, that only the heavenly-minded Christian is able to have a meaningful life on earth. Dr. Bergstrom, when commenting on Augustine's work, he said this, this is worth noting, quote, but only those who consider themselves to be citizens of the heavenly city, their hearts longing for their true patriarch with God in the life to come, are able to engage the affairs of this life with any sense of virtue or dignity and love for their fellow man. End quote. That's powerful, and it's true. Going back to Costco magazine, I have to admit they got one thing right. Well, the Medicare thing is right too, but they did get point number five right. Point number five was on the money. The most successful retirements are those that are most profoundly meaningful. It's those in retirements where individuals, instead of splurging on themselves with a new car, a more exotic vacation, all of those things that the world tells you to live for, when those individuals rise to the occasion and give up their retirement years for others. Mark Chimsky, in his book, 65 Things You Could Do When You Retire, Chimsky put together a collection of 65 essays from a diverse range of contributors, uh, ranging from pre- former President Jimmy Carter, senior Olympics gold medal winner Ruth Heydrich, good compilation. And at the end of his work, the editor discovered one common theme. He discovered how important it was for his contributors to pursue a passion that gave them a sense of purpose as their identity shifted in later years. Now you might sit there and go, oh, that makes sense, that's pretty cool, until you pause and realize that for Christians, our identity has never shifted. Your identity is in Christ. It never shifts. 
You have the blessed assurance of knowing that you are loved by God. And so that's why, friends, you don't have to wait to your retirement years to begin doing meaningful work for Jesus Christ. 2019, right here, right now, is a fresh new year. Verse 20 of today's text is clear. You are right now a citizen in King Jesus' kingdom. So I urge you today, remember that. Treasure that. And live as if that was true. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today.